0: Hello again. This week, dishonesty in the banking industry.
1: This uh, bank employee's occupational role implicitly uh, favours dishonest uh, behaviour.
2: And the weird and wonderful world of Victorian Arctic exploration.
3: Actually, in the library, we're displaying a depiction of an inflatable rubberised boat that actually doubled as a cloak. Plus, could there be such a thing as a
0: friendly virus? This is the Nature Podcast for November the twentieth, twenty fourteen. I'm Jeff Marsh,
2: and I'm Kerry Smith.
4: The next station is Bank. I'm in the
2: heart of the city of London, one of the world's biggest financial hubs. The smart headquarters of large banks are all around me. Even the pubs are themed. This one behind me is called The Banker. It's Friday and the drinkers here look pretty contented. But all has not been well with the reputation of many banks lately. Rogue traders bringing down companies, the LIBOR interest rate meddling scandal. It's probably fair to say that trust in bankers is at an all-time low. But what's beneath these scandals? Plenty of commentators have blamed the culture within the financial industry, turning a blind eye to dishonest behaviours instead of nipping them in the bud, or placing all the emphasis on money, no matter what the cost. A team of economists have tried to get together some scientific evidence to see what's going on, and I spoke to them.
1: Okay, it's Michel Maréchal, and I'm an assistant professor for experimental economics at the University of Zurich. Everything actually started with an opportunity to conduct an experiment on cheating with inmates uh, from a maximum security prison. The inmates cheated more when they were reminded of the fact that they are criminals. So we used a a very similar approach in this study to study the business culture in uh, the banking industry.
2: So what you hypothesize is that people's identities, when they're made to think about them, can have a uh, a, a real impact on their behavior?
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: So with all of this in mind, you persuaded, I suppose, one of the big banks in Zurich to let you do a study on some of their employees. So
1: we've been in contact with uh, many banks uh, around the globe to, uh, be- because of this study and, and contacted them and actually uh, one of them was-, was kind enough to do this study but we will not uh, actually we will respect uh, the wish of this company and will not reveal its location or identity actually.
2: And what did you have these people do in order to try and disentangle, first of all, were they dishonest? And then secondly, what was causing them to be?
1: Yes, so the key problem is basically, you would not know whether the business culture actually renders bank employees more dishonest or whether more dishonest people simply choose to work in the banking industry. So we have chosen a different approach with more than 200 bank employees. We randomly assigned them into two experimental conditions. So in the experimental group, we reminded the participants of their occupational role with appropriate survey questions like uh, what bank they work for or how many years of professional experience they have. So this manipulation should put their occupational role and the associated norms on top of their minds. And by contrast, we had a control condition where we did not remind the subjects about their occupational role, so we asked them questions about their leisure activities. And subsequently, all the participants completed a coin tossing task where they could actually increase their income by up to 200 US dollars if they behaved dishonestly.
2: And what you found was that the same people, when they were just doing this coin toss and they'd been asked about what they do in their spare time, they they behaved, you know, on average, honestly. But when their bank identity was made salient, something different happened.
1: Then the, a substantial share of them actually started to cheat. So suggesting that these uh, bank employees' occupational role implicitly uh, favours dishonest uh, behaviour.
2: They're not necessarily dishonest people, it's just that being within this industry seems to make people verge towards dishonesty. Alan, what is it about banking culture?
5: Our study suggests that the materialistic values trigger the dishonest behaviour. So what we find is that in the experimental group where we increase the salience of the occupational role, that uh, people are more likely also to say that um, financial status is important uh, to them. And we also find a positive correlation between uh, social status is uh, determined by financial success and uh, the amount of successful coin flips.
2: Right. So that means that people who care a lot about having money are more likely to cheat in the coin toss. I wonder, I mean, there's obviously an effect of culture, as you say, but could it also not be the type of person who's materialistic, who goes into banking?
5: Yes, but that's just not what we what we find. Actually, I have also f- friends of mine who, after uh, their studies in economics, uh, went to work in the banking industry and I had the feeling that their sense of materialism um, changed a lot.
2: So it's the fact that one of the overarching norms of banking culture is that money is good. I mean, that seems kind of hard to get over since at the heart of this industry is making money. Michelle Maréchal, let's come back to you. So, one uh,
1: idea that has been put forward by several experts and regulators is that actually bank employees should take a professional oath, so similar to the Hippocratic Oath uh, for physicians, and such an oath could then be supported with additional ethics training, etc., to prompt uh, bank employees to more strongly consider the impact uh, of their behavior on, on clients and society.
2: That's some policies for bankers then. What about the banks themselves, Alan Cohn?
5: Banks should not reward employees for this dishonest behaviour. So they have to verify whether the incentive structure and compensation plans are whether they are aligned with an honest culture or not.
2: Do you think that's realistic for the banking industry to instill such measures?
1: I think it's, it's necessary because the image of the banking industry it has been severely damaged by these uh, scandals and is, continue, uh, and is still uh, damaged. Uh, it's in their own interest to take measures to restore this public image.
2: That was Michel Maréchal and before him, Alan Cohn. The paper is at nature.com nature, along with an accompanying News and Views
0: article. The research highlights in Just a Mo feature senior shoppers, corkscrews of light and pictures of Mozart. But first, a new exhibition replays a treacherous journey. In 1845, two ships left England bound for the icy wastes of northern Canada. They carried explorer Sir John Franklin and his crew of men, and they were going in search of the fabled Northwest Passage, a predicted shipping route between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans through the Arctic archipelago. And they were never heard from again, until earlier this year when the wreck of Franklin's ship was discovered sunk in the Victoria Strait in the far north of Canada. The route was eventually navigated successfully by Norwegian explorer Raald Amundsen at the turn of the 20th century, but these days it remains relatively closed because of the difficulties in navigating the ice-choked waters. As climate change is reducing the extent of the freeze, however, it's possible that the passage could become more widely used." The British Library has an exhibition about the Northwest Passage and some of the more noteworthy explorers who gave it a go. These characters included British naval officer Sir John Ross, who seemed to be a bit of a science fan. I spoke to lead curator Phil Hatfield about the science and technology needed to pierce the passage.
3: Every explorer who went, as well as being part of this sort of tradition of expeditions going looking for the Northwest Passage, they were also taking their own interests, and a lot of their interests were very often scientific. A lot of the captains who went had interests either in technology or in zoology or in you know observations of the climate, and they took these studies with them. A good example of that is a man called John Ross. John Ross captained one of the first naval expeditions to go and look for the Northwest Passage in 1818. And while some people regard the expedition as a failure, because he returned and categorically said there is no Northwest Passage, what Ross also did was take incredibly detailed observations of the local communities that he engaged with, in particular the West Greenland, Inuit, and also of the animals and the plants and the landscapes that he came across. And he not only wrote about this, but he illustrated it very heavily in his published works as well
0: you have here at the British Library an oral recording of one of the local Inuits' responses to seeing Ross appearing over the horizon.
3: Yes, we do. We're very lucky to have a loan from the Canadian Museum of History of one of their Inuit oral history recordings. It was actually collected in the early 20th century in Nunavut, but it's a story that has been handed down across generations and it recounts the arrival of John Ross and his men. and it's a fascinating description of a community on on the cusp of change, on the cusp of realising that their life as they knew it is going to be completely different. And the way the story unfolds is a hunter is out on the ice and he smells a different smell and becomes intrigued by this. And he sees something moving in the distance. And then he describes this thing moving in the distance as being effectively a mountain that moves. And it's Ross's ship.
6: He started smelling something
5: strange that he never smelled either. And he kept looking around to see what was coming in the storm. And then he saw something that looked like a mountain. That night uh, everybody was quite uh, scared, not knowing what was in their uh, hunting territory. And then they were quite
6: afraid, so they all gathered into one of the igloos.
3: They're intrigued by what it is and so they consult amongst themselves and with their shaman and they agree that they should go and meet these people. The story then recounts how they met and it shows you that this is an exchange now that is going to change the life of this group, so much so that that story has been handed down for over 150 years.
0: What role did science play in the survival of these brave explorers?
3: Well, it was very important. Technology, innovation, and science were were the driving forces behind why people were able to survive these landscapes. Some of these technologies worked very well. Actually, in the library, we're displaying um, a depiction of an inflatable rubberized boat that actually doubled as a cloak Um, and it's very ahead of its time but it worked perfectly. It was taken by people like Dr John Ray to explore the northern coast of Canada and used successfully over a a large number of years Um, and those sorts of things worked brilliantly. Things that didn't work so well, going back to Captain John Ross again. Um, is things like he took um, one of the first steam engines to be used in the arctic and while this was a fantastic idea to sort of take the ship away from being at the whim of the wind in terms of where it went uh, the idea was also slightly ahead of its time in terms of the the rigor of using it in the arctic and so the engine was underpowered it didn't really work the expedition ended in failure and there was some acrimony when Ross returned home between him and the manufacturer of the engine, which is, I guess, sometimes the way these stories of science and innovation do turn out. And
0: so this exhibition is is packed with a, a really colourful history of our interaction with the Arctic. Now that we've found a Northwest Passage, is it, are we finished?
3: Definitely not. I think what the exhibition shows is that there's been a, a long fascination with the Arctic as a landscape, as a place of resources, as a place of potential trade routes. I don't think the discovery of a potentially navigable Northwest Passage would stop the very broad range of interests that Europeans and North Americans have always had in that landscape.
0: That was Philip Hatfield. And if you're in London, you can go and see the exhibition Lines in the Ice Seeking the Northwest Passage now at the British Library. See some of the exhibits online at bl.uk. Also, thanks to the Canadian Museum of History for the use of that lovely historical recording.
2: Coming up, viruses get a bad rap, but some of them could be doing some good. More on that story after these research highlights, read by Charlotte Soddart.
7: There are only five shopping weeks left till Christmas. It's exhausting just thinking about it. And older shoppers might find it especially demanding. A new study finds that seniors use a different cognitive strategy to younger people when comparing purchases. Scientists gave an online shopping game to older and younger adults. They had to compare products at different prices and select the best deals. The older group found the task more taxing and showed slightly different activation patterns in their brains. Not necessarily a bad thing, they're just recruiting other brain areas to help when the task is tricky. But it doesn't mean grandma won't buy you socks again this year. The paper is in the Journal of Neuroscience. Twisting corkscrews of light have been used to send information across the city of Vienna. Scientists have long used light to carry information. And by forming the light into twists, it can carry more data. The trouble is, previous attempts have been across very short distances. A team used green laser light to transmit black and white pictures of famous Austrians, including Mozart, three kilometres across Vienna which might seem elaborate when you could just send an email. But it's proof that such beams can survive a trip through the turbulent atmosphere unscathed. More in the New Journal of Physics.
2: The human gut is a microbial menagerie, teeming with friendly, so-called commensal bacteria. They help us digest food, keep harmful bugs at bay, and perform a host of other useful tasks. This zoo is known as the gut microbiome, and it's got a lot of attention from scientists in recent years. But they've overlooked a key member of the microbiome – viruses. Sure, viral infections are behind lots of diseases, from Ebola to the common cold, but they're not all bad news. Microbiologist Ken Cadwell at New York University tells Nature reporter Ewan Calloway about one virus that seems to be doing some good.
8: Viruses are typically thought of as bad guys. There are plenty of viruses associated with very serious disorders. But what's less appreciated is the fact that we've known for a long time that you could get infected by viruses and sometimes not get sick. So perhaps an extension of that is that maybe sometimes when viruses don't make you sick, they might actually be doing something good for you for a change.
6: And your team studied one virus in particular, which, truth be told, has quite a bad reputation. Tell us about the virus you looked at.
8: Right. So we looked at a mouse version of a norovirus. The mouse norovirus typically does not cause any kind of disease and is asymptomatic in mice. But the human noroviruses have quite a bad reputation, uh, especially for spoiling your cruise ship vacation. So human noroviruses cause viral gastroenteritis, um, also known as the stomach flu, and it likes to spread in places where people live in close quarters and causes a horrible vomiting and diarrheal disease most of the time.
6: But you went on to show that the norovirus, the mouse norovirus, was actually doing some good for the rodents. What was the virus doing?
8: So what we did is we asked a very basic question, which is, if this virus is sticking around in the gut, just like commensal bacteria do, can it do some of the beneficial things that commensal bacteria do? So what we did is we took mice that are deficient in commensal bacteria, and we put the virus into these bacterially depleted mice. And so what we found was that these mice, because they don't have commensal bacteria, have all kinds of developmental abnormalities in their intestine and associated uh, immune system. And when we put the virus into these mice, it was as if we put in bacteria back into the mice. They were, and now reverse these abnormalities, and the mice look like normal mice that uh, have commensal bacteria.
6: Did you figure out how uh, this mouse norovirus is playing the beneficial role of gut bacteria in these mice?
8: How a virus can actually behave like commensal bacteria is a fascinating question for me because unlike bacteria, which can replicate on their own and have their own machinery, viruses actually require the host in order to replicate. So that suggests to me that the virus is triggering activity through the host as an intermediary. And so there must be some complex signals going on. And I speculate that it's not just one thing that's being turned on and that multiple things are coming together to exert their effect.
6: Is there any reason to think that norovirus, the human version of norovirus, could be offering some of the same benefits when it's not making us vomit horribly?
8: It is definitely possible. I do want to caution that uh, I, I really advise against inoculating oneself with a norovirus, it would not be pretty. But noroviruses have been found from asymptomatic people, so there may be certain situations, probably not all the time, but certain situations in which the viruses can step up and perform a beneficial function. Perhaps one obvious one based on our studies is if uh, you take antibiotics and you deplete good bacteria, that might be a time when a virus could kick in and perform some kind of beneficial function to compensate for that.
6: But as you say, I mean, they're probably already there in our guts right now providing beneficial roles.
8: That's, of course, speculation on my part, but I don't think it's too big of a stretch once you accept the fact that there are viruses that are there that are not making you sick all the time, that maybe sometimes those viruses do something good for us for a change.
2: Ken Cadwell there talking to Ewan Calloway.
0: News time now, and joining me in the studio is Nature's Lizzie Gibney. Hi, Lizzie. Hello. So, Rosetta, you watched the landing live from the European Space Operations Centre in Germany. I know this because I saw you on our excellent video blogs, First of all, how was that?
4: It was just an amazing place to be on that day, absolutely packed with scientists, with journalists, and it really was one of those situations where you just don't know what the outcome is going to be. They were trying to land a probe on a comet and it really could have gone either way. And um, yes, hopefully not spoiling anything by saying that, uh, thankfully, they were
0: successful. Well, fantastic that you got to be there. And of course, it's a great success story. But Fela actually had quite a bumpy landing, didn't she?
4: There was a bit of drama. So at first we heard... Excellent. The lander is sitting there on the surface, but that was a little bit premature. Actually, what ended up happening was the lander came down but then bounced twice, once going up as high as a kilometre above the comet's surface before coming back down again. And it ended up not in this beautiful, pristine, flat, sunny spot that had been picked out for it, but actually at the bottom of a cliff, kind of on its side, with one of its feet sticking up. And also that meant that it's in the shade, which is possibly going to be a bit of a, a problem, well, certainly in the near future.
0: So given that its batteries were then basically left to die, how long did she actually have to, to do some science?
4: So the lander was able to complete its first science phase. So they always thought this was a possibility. It has solar panels, but it all depended on where it was on the comet. It would have done an awful lot more if they'd had months months to go, but but they had this 64 hours and they tried to use it as best they could.
0: Now, they have various sets of instruments asking various questions. Give me a sense of some of the early results.
4: So there's one instrument on there called mupus, which is a hammer. And this is kind of a result that came from the hammer not really working very well. So it tried to go into the surface and it went down about um, 10 to 20 centimetres, but then couldn't really get much further. And this suggests that there's maybe a dusty layer on the top, but then underneath that is something very hard, like very, very hard ice. And that's actually quite a surprise because the density overall of the comet suggests that we shouldn't have that hard material all over its surface. So that's something that they're going to have to try and reconcile probably now we also had maybe a little bit of a hint that uh, we could get some really interesting results because of the bounce that the lander did. So um, one of the instruments called RoMAP is looking at the magnetic field around the comet and if you just have one descent you can study the magnetic field at different distances but if you have two bounces and three different landing sites then you get a whole other wealth of data. So we don't have very specific data yet out from this um, mostly because quite sensibly they're trying to save it up for papers that they can publish in, in journals which is fair enough. If they won't tell me, but, uh, but we are getting some signs that hopefully there'll be some interesting things to come.
0: What about the kinds of molecules? Because people always talk about possibly comets seeding life on Earth. Mm. Any interesting organic finds?
4: So far we know that, yes, they have found organic molecules. The COSEC instrument found those not from within the sample, but just from surface measurements. So we know there are organics there. And beyond that, we haven't actually heard anything anything else. But I, I would love to know exactly what they are.
0: I guess all that's left now then is to just have a minute's silence for little Feli whose batteries are now run down.
4: Actually, I wouldn't speak so soon, Jeff. The good news is that because the comet is heading towards the sun, it's actually going to get hotter and will get more intensity from the sun. And this might mean that even though the solar panels are in the shade at the moment and not working particularly well, they will have a hell of a lot more light and maybe they will actually power up the lander a few months down the line. So... Even this this cliff that at the moment is causing so much trouble because it's a big shadow over the lander could end up a blessing. It could be that it turns into some kind of parasol that actually enables the craft to survive much longer than it would have done otherwise. So, yes, it may actually uh, be turning this curse into a blessing.
0: A bumpy blessing in disguise. Could be. Finally then, it's hard to imagine that you'd have another space story as cool as landing a probe on a comet, but I think you've gone and done it. Kickstart a mission to bury a time capsule on the moon.
4: Yeah. So this is an idea that actually, I mean, it's come at a great time because the whole world is talking about Rosetta and being very excited about space missions. They want to go back to the moon. And to drill a borehole in the Moon's South Pole, which is a scientifically very exciting region, between 20 metres and 100 metres, that would be fantastic for studying the origins of the Moon, which has impacts on the origins of the Earth. But they want to do it. They want to get the money to get there by crowdfunding.
0: Now, we'll come back to the bonkers notion of crowdfunding a space mission in a minute. But first of all, who is they?
4: so the idea the founder is just one individual and he is a guy called David iron and he has worked um, on financing tech projects for a long time and, and worked with the space industry and about seven or eight years ago he just came up with this idea he thought there are loads of fantastic missions out there that people have proposed that never got government money because there just isn't enough to go around and how about we think about uh, making something that's so exciting that all the public themselves want to get involved as well so he's managed to get some um, big names involved he's managed to get the um, Rutherford Appleton Laboratory Space, RAL Space, involved and lots of real space scientists, Ian Crawford, Monica Grady, and he hopes that down the line, once this has got a little bit of success and passed the initial phase, that maybe ESA and NASA and, and, and governments will also like to provide their backing. But at the moment, it's very much a plucky little company, really, going it alone.
0: Now, I've heard of successful Kickstarter projects for film budgets and for, you know, small techie things. Going to the moon, now, how much does that cost?
4: Well, they say the middle point of their predictions, um, so what they, they reckon they can get, is about $3 billion dollars. So it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely ambitious. But the people I've spoken to about this mission say, well, I mean, technically it looks quite serious and the people in- involved are those who could make this kind of thing happen. So as crazy as it may seem, I know, maybe, maybe it will work.
0: And will it be a manned mission?
4: No, so this would be a, a robotic lander that would um, drill a hole. But the idea as well is that it would be in this area of the moon where someday people might want to build a lunar base. So it'll investigate the area partly with that in mind and it may also cache really exciting samples for a sample return mission that could follow later. They want to do this within the next 10 years or so, um, so we're still talking near-ish future.
0: Right, and as well as scoping out the area for a potential lunar base and having a look at lunar origins, um, they're also going to bury a time capsule. That's cool. What's, what's going to go in that?
4: Yeah, so this seems to me a little bit like the kind of gimmicky bit that, that allows you to do the, the serious science. But it's going to be that the, where they've bored the hole, they obviously will have lots of space and they can put things in it. And And on the moon, it will be protected from the features that might destroy something similar on Earth, like, you know, tectonic movements or even wars or something, I suppose. And um, so you could put in it a digital Archive, which actually will be what people are donating for. They will get their own little bit of digital archive, so you could put in your own family photos or something. There might even be DNA samples, so hair samples. And there will also be a public archive, which would be maybe something similar to what Voyager is is travelling out beyond the solar system with at the moment, something which sums up all of humanity in case something happens to Earth. An alien species may find this on the moon years into the future.
0: Cool and pessimistic at the same time.
4: <laughs> at the same time. Well, I mean, yeah, this this will hopefully last, you know, a few billion years. I think we've only got about five billion years until the sun turns into a red giant and destroys us all anyway. But so <laughs> long term space science is a bit pessimistic, unfortunately.
0: Well. How soul crushing to have you with us, Lizzie.
4: <laughs> Thank you very much. Still, this is this is optimistic because, you know, we're saying we might leave something behind if we if we play our cards right.
0: Thanks, Lizzie. Find more on all those stories at nature.com slash news.
2: And thanks to you for listening to us. Again, look out over the next few days for our monthly gossip show, Backchat. I'm Kerry Smith.
0: And I'm Jeff Marsh.